Thanks for joining us for this special Sunday worship gathering. Today is our nation's largest unofficial holiday and sporting event, and we are leveraging that for the kingdom of God. Let's prepare our hearts to hear what God has for us today. Hi, everyone. How y'all doing? My name is Brian, one of the pastors around here. It is Super Bowl Sunday, and you're at church. Congratulations. Way to go. This is important, and uh, especially if you're a guest, really glad you're here uh, today. Uh, It is Super Bowl Sunday, and it's a big day, and this guy named Steve Harvey made this great announcement for us. Congratulations to the Cardinals and the Patriots on making it to Super Bowl. Yeah, poor Steve Harvey and his big announcements these days, right? Kind of. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. You can Google it a little later. Uh, Denver Broncos fans in the house? few Carolina fans in the house? That was four. And you just felt bad for them. So you jumped in. I did some Super Bowl research uh, this week and learned some little known facts about the Super Bowl. Did you know that today is the second biggest day of the year for food consumption in the United States? Next to Thanksgiving. That's exactly right. Next to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is first. Uh, Americans spent more than $50 million on, the four day, on food in the four days leading up to today. $50 million just on food. 4,000 tons of popcorn is going to get eaten today. 4,000 tons of popcorn. This one will just... Do you have any guacamole fans in the house? Yeah. Like, could you just not survive on guacamole? Yeah. It, it is a staple all unto itself. Eight million pounds of guacamole are going to get eaten in the United States today. Ah, wow. But this one's even more disgusting to me. 14,500 tons of potato chips are going to get eaten today. And you need to go to the gym tomorrow (laughs) after that many chips. This one makes me sad. It should make you sad too. 5% of Super Bowl viewers are going to watch the game all by themselves. Yeah, exactly. So, Journey, make sure that nobody in your world is watching the game by themselves. If you even have a doubt, I wonder what that, call them up. Invite, go Super Bowl, you know, invite them over, have a Super Bowl party. Nobody should watch the game by themselves. One out of every 12 people watching the game will be suffering through the boring football parts just to see the commercials. <laughs> One in 12. Any of those in the house? Yeah, oh gosh, more than... Especially a game like this one, right? I mean, like, seriously. 6% of you, 6% of you are going to call in sick tomorrow. You had a little too much fun today. So you're going to call in, 6% of Americans call in sick the day after the Super And acid sales increases by 20% tomorrow, the day after guacamole and chips, right? That's it. This one blew my mind. Every year they make more than 700,000 footballs just for the NFL to use. 700,000 footballs made just for the NFL use. And then they set 72 of those aside for use just during the Super Bowl. 72 set aside, and then they tell Tom Brady to keep his hands off of those, (laughs) right? So here's what we're going to do today. We know that something like 117 million Americans are going to watch the big game today, the Super Bowl. That, by the way, if you do the math, is about a third, close to a third of the entire United States population. It is an enormous percentage, enormous event. And we're going to look together today at three different NFL narratives, three different NFL stories. 
And we're going to use those stories to illustrate a spirit, what I'm calling a spiritual growth inflection point for each of us as we seek to better know and follow Jesus. So it's not about the football. It's about the spiritual growth inflection point for us that we're going to use the football play to apply to our lives. And so y'all good with that? Y'all, that work for you? That's pretty pathetic. That work for you? Yeah, okay, good job. I promise you we're going to get you out of here before the game starts. That's my commitment to you. We have a deal. First one, if you have your notes page, you can pull it out. We're going to talk a little bit about the catch, as it's known. And we're going to talk a little bit about faith in God, and we're going to take that lesson of faith out of the catch. And this is the drive that led to arguably the most memorable NFL play ever in the history of the game. It started on the San Francisco 49ers own 11 yard, I am a little biased, San Francisco's own 11 yard line. They're down 27-21 at home, Candlestick Park, 1981 NFC Championship game. The 49ers led by Bill Walsh, their coach, a very young quarterback named Joe Montana. That's exactly right. They're hoping to turn the page on more than a decade of futility. However, Wedged between the Niners and Sweet Victory are 89 yards of grass and the vaunted, who are they playing? The Dallas Cowboys. That's exactly right. AKA America's team. I have no idea why the Cowboys are America's team, but they're America's team. Whatever reason. And so the 49ers, they march methodically down the field and they stand huddling while the ball rests at the Dallas six yard line. It's third down Three yards to go for a first down. Play call is sprint right option. Watch this. So we were, you know, talking about it in the huddle, and Joe was saying, Freddie, I'm going to come to you. And then as we're breaking the huddle, he's like, Dwight, be ready. Don Landry is six yards away from his sixth Super Bowl. And, of course, for the upstart 49ers, they're six yards away from Pontiac. Third and three. I started back across. Everson Walls was right beside me. He had me covered. I remember seeing the ball coming and thinking, wow, that's pretty high. Joe just put it in the exact spot that it had to be. Just another magical play by Joe. All those bitter memories against Dallas wiped away by one magical play. Joe couldn't do it in practice, but in a game that gets you to the Super Bowl on his back foot with three guys in front of him. He puts it in the exact spot that it had to be. We ought to applaud that, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, that is just spectacular. Some of you are like, I ain't clapping for the 49ers. I ain't clapping. That ball, it was like destined to end up in the bleachers. But then Clark's fingertips like miraculously rose. Did you see how high he jumped off the ground? Pulls that ball in, secures this stunning San Francisco victory. You know the rest of the story. That same Niners squad rolled on to win that year's Super Bowl along with three more Super Bowl championships just in the decade of the 1980s. And a guy named Jarrett Bell, he writes, for, uh, writes about football for USA Today, the newspaper. He put it like this. The catch, that play. 
was the turning point that created the dynasty that has since collapsed painfully <laughs> into the ground. But that's what started it all. If you've got a Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It's on your notes page on the screen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And I don't care how good of a quarterback Joe Montana is or was, he did not see that catch happening, yet he had incredible faith that that catch would happen. Faith is Here's the verse again, is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And how many of us who follow Jesus Christ, we want to know exactly everything that's going to happen before we ever take a single step of faith trusting God? How many of us? Like, oh, that's me, right? We want to know. And for Jesus Christ, you look at everything he taught all throughout the New Testament of the scriptures, faith was everything for Jesus. And yet we've we've drifted a bit, haven't we? Because for so many of Jesus' followers, lots of us, sight and clarity and seeing it all is everything for us. And so when you're examining your life and you're thinking about like, okay, how am I going to kick a bigger dent for the kingdom of God? How am I going to advance the kingdom of God in my life, in this world, in the very biggest way I possibly can? You want to know the answer? Really simple answer. Really simple solution. Move you right to the solution side. Here's how. Trust God more. Live by faith more. You want to kick a bigger dent in this world for the kingdom of God. You want the kingdom of God to advance through your life a little bit more, a little bit more, a lot more even. Try trusting God more and living by faith more. It wasn't like faith was some minor feature out on the edges of Jesus' teaching. Faith was everything for Jesus Christ. It was every single thing he ever talked about. It's assurance. Faith is assurance. Faith in God is assurance in a no-so, not just a hope-so kind of way, understanding how God's plan unfolds. That's it. The Securities and Exchange Commission requires that people who sell securities, investments and so, requires that they put this little line on all in and on all of their advertising. Do you, do you know this little line? You know what the line is? This is high tech. I have an iPad here and then I got a sticky note stuck to it. Aren't we? Here it is. Past performance, you've heard this, does not predict future results. Right? The SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, requires any investment that you ever buy from any security vendor has that stamped on it. Past performance does not predict future results. It doesn't work like that with God, though, does it? God's past performance actually does guarantee his future results. Now, it might not come out the end of the tunnel the very same way every single time, but God is reliable. If he says it, it's going to come to pass. You can trust him. You can step out in great faith, and he is going to show up, maybe not in the way you're hoping or expecting, but he is, and he will, and he does. And every time, faith involves, involves confident action in God. Your faith in God requires confident action in God. 
And I'm not suggesting there's anything whatsoever spiritual about Joe Montana's pass to Dwight Clark that won that game. What I am suggesting, however, is that if that football play is a parallel to the life of faith in Jesus Christ, then here's what you gotta do. You know what you gotta do? You gotta throw the pass. You've got to throw the pass. You've got to go for it. Don't, don't, whatever you do, don't just stand there. Don't just stand there. Because faith in God fleshes itself out in what I like to call a holy boldness, a bold confidence that God is going to show up. Go for it. Throw the pass. Second thing about faith, it takes action in response to the unseen God and his promises. Faith takes action in response to the unseen God and his promises. Heard this fantastic story about a Christian university student. He shared a room with a Muslim student. Throughout the year, those two students, Christian student, Muslim student, they became very, very good friends. Their conversations frequently, as a matter of fact, turned to matters of faith, what each of them believed. And there came a point one day when the Christian student dared to ask his Muslim friend, have you ever read the Bible? Bold, faith-filled question, isn't it? Have you ever read the Bible? Muslim student said, no, as a matter of fact, I haven't. He asked the Christian, have you ever read the Quran? No, I haven't, said the Christian student. Christian student suggests, why don't we? It'd be really interesting, though. Why don't we both, once a week, read together alternating books? And so they did. They traded off reading each other's sacred texts. And at one point in the second semester of that school year, their friendship was deepening, their conversations were becoming more and more rich. The Muslim student crossed the line of faith in Jesus Christ, became a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's fantastic, isn't it? Absolutely fantastic. A beautiful step of faith. Shortly after coming to faith in Christ, late one night, that student came bursting through their dorm room door, yelling at his friend who had been following Jesus for a long time, yelling, you deceived me, you deceived me, and the Kid who'd been following Jesus for a long time, he's real confused, like, what are you talking about? New Christian opens up his Bible. He says, I've been reading through this entire book, cover to cover, and I just read where it says, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active. I just found that part. And you deceive me, because you never told me that the Bible was alive and active. You knew all along that the Bible holds God's power. It's pregnant with God's power and that the Quran is just like any other book. And the Muslim, former Muslim student said, I didn't have a chance, did I? I didn't have a chance, did I? Longtime follower of Jesus said, are you mad at me? He said, no way. But you would have to admit it was an unfair contest from the very beginning. Unfair contest. So that student, that Christ-following student stepped out in great faith, this promise that God and his word is alive and active. He takes a huge step of faith in response to God and his promises. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to go. He doesn't know how it's all going to shake out, but look what happens when he does. That student's whole trajectory of his entire life is altered, eternity altered forever and ever because one kid dared to take a bold step of faith for Jesus Christ. And we all, every single one of us, young, old, everywhere in between, we've got a step of faith that we could take like right now for Jesus Christ. And some of us, we're just like standing there. Oh, that's a little scary. I don't know how it's gonna go. 
a little uncertain of the results. But just think, how might God show up? What might God do if we stepped out? If you stepped out? If you, through the pass, so to speak. Next thing, faith involves God's working extraordinary miracles in the lives of ordinary people. God works extraordinary miracles in the lives of ordinary, that's all of us, we're all just ordinary people, and so are the people on the pages of scripture. In the lives of whom God showed up and did extraordinary miracles. They're just ordinary people, just like us. Jesus was pretty extraordinary. But then there's the rest of them. And they just had faith. They just stepped out and God did incredible. And he wants to do the very same kind of thing with us. Faith always works in a variety of situations. Situations just like we all live in. And none of us have the same story. None of us have the same background. None of us have the same history and so. And yet faith in God works in a variety of situations. There is no cookie cutter, is there? God works. Faith works. Faith in God may also have a variety of outcomes. Often big, courageous steps of faith are rewarded with like big, huge, positive outcomes. Things like the Red Sea parts, the walls of Jericho, they come crashing down. People, whoa, they're raised from the dead. Big, positive outcomes. And sometimes, lots of you have felt this, I know, I have. Faith is rewarded, if you want to call it that, with a delayed outcome. Have any of those? Maybe even a negative outcome. Have any of those? Where you're praying and you're stepping out in great faith and you're asking for like the rising from the dead kind of a thing and then it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen. And then maybe the exact opposite thing of the thing that you've been praying for happens. Right? Like Abel died, didn't he? He got murdered, as a matter of fact. Abraham had to wait an awful long time for the son God promised. And on and on and on, I can tell you the negative outcomes, the delayed outcomes to great faith all throughout the scriptures even. And so here's the thing. No matter how much faith we may have, we might not ever see the results we've been trusting God for in this lifetime. We also live in that tension. I was a youth pastor for years and years. And so that was like my bread and butter right there. Because you'd pour into middle school students and high school students and nothing would ever appreciably change, it would seem. And you're pouring in and you're pouring in and you're pouring in and then they graduate and they go to college somewhere and you never ever see them again. And that could be awfully discouraging, except you hang your hat. It's like, okay, someday God's going to break through and someday God's going to do that. I might not ever see it. We might not ever see it. Faith is always rewarded, though, by God. Faith is always rewarded by God. And I'm not talking about with touchdown catches and NFC championships and Super Bowl wins, but rather with the commendation from God himself. What's the commendation? Two words, well done. That's the commendation. That's the commendation that every Christ follower of the world over longs to hear at the end of their earthly run. Well done done. God longs to do all kinds of stuff in us and through us, but the question is, do you have the faith in him to step out, throw the pass, so to speak, and just go for it? 
Just go for it. See, here's the deal. Had Joe Montana not thrown that crazy, way too high, headed for the bleachers pass, the catch would have never happened. Would have never happened. And so it is with us. What bold step of faith is God inviting you to take, trusting him, trusting him, trusting him for the outcome. Just do it. Just do it. Second thing we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the Buffalo Bills' four Super Bowl losses. Do you have any Buffalo Bills fans in the room? <laughs> Here's what, give this guy a hand. There's one right here. One, right at, way to go. Yes. And, and there's one word I think that summarizes their four Super Bowl losses. Here it is right here. The word is defeat. Right? It is defeat. 1990, you know this well, don't you? 1990, 1991, 1992, and 1993, the Buffalo Bills found themselves every single one of those four years in the Super Bowl. They just couldn't find a way to close the deal, right? Super Bowl wins eluded them. Like, they would have taken just one, one out of four would have been sweet, right? Just one out of four, or even 50%. And so, watch this. After racking up 95 points and 995 yards in two playoff victories, Buffalo was favored by a touchdown over the Giants in Super Bowl 25. In January of 1992, after winning their fourth consecutive AFC East title, the Bills were back in the Super Bowl. Only this time, they were underdogs to the high-flying Redskins. Super Bowl 26 had hardly gotten underway when Thurman Thomas missed the first two plays because he couldn't find his helmet. The Bills went on to commit five turnovers, four of which cost them 20 points in a 37-24 route by the rampaging Capital Gang. The team's momentum took a blow in the second quarter of Super Bowl 27 when Dallas knocked Kelly out of the game. Without their leader, it was all downhill for the Bills. We ended up having nine offensive turnovers, and I threw two interceptions, and we lost 52-17. to 17. In Super Bowl 28, Buffalo again faced Dallas. After leading 13-6 at the half, the Bills imploded four plays into the third quarter on a carry by Thomas. Buffalo's biggest stars came up small in their last three Super Bowls. Kelly committed nine turnovers, and Thomas averaged less than two yards per carry and fumbled three times. If you've managed to lose four straight times, then you've taken that achievement to another level. I mean, you've managed to create tragedy out of triumph over and over, and they mastered the art of losing the Super Bowl. Let's just say it together. Uh, all right? Can you even imagine how defeated you would feel as a Bills player? If you're one of the Bills coaches, if you're even a Bills fan, how defeated you would feel. And yet most of us who are honest, we take a very introspective look at our lives, most of us who are honest would say, yeah, but I also know the agony of defeat. Right? We do. It might not be like four consecutive Super Bowl losses like the Bills, but I felt utter defeat when, and you fill in the blank, I felt utter, complete, total defeat when, right, whatever it is, you got that phone call, that doctor's report, he or she walked out the door, X, Y, Z, right? You fill in the blank. Because we all know, we've all felt it, we've all tasted it, we've all experienced it, like, defeat, or at least apparent 
defeat. Because you listen and you look at what the Apostle Paul says about quote-unquote defeat in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Look at what he says. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Whoa, what's he saying? He's saying, hey friends, what feels to you an awful lot like utter and complete and total defeat, you know what? It's not really defeat. Yes, it's bad. Yes, it feels really, really bad, but it is not the end of you. As a matter of fact, it's the rebirth of a whole new you that can actually only come to be when we share in the death of Christ so that we can also share in the resurrection of Christ. Because in order for something to rise from the dead, in order for something to be resurrected from the dead, something else has to die. And a whole bunch of the time, that's us, or a piece of us, or some facet of us has to die. And so the deal is that the defeat we might well feel, it could very well be Jesus loving you and loving me so much that he's not giving you in this moment everything that you think you need in this moment. Ever thought about that? The defeat you might feel may well be Jesus loving you so much that he's constantly, and I mean constantly, in the business of refining you to look and love and act and serve and pray more like him, to be like him. And stuff's got to die in order for stuff like Jesus to rise in us and through us. The defeat you might well feel in this moment could very well be Jesus loving you so very much that from time to time, he's walking you like hand in hand, walking you, strengthening you, defending you, comforting you, loving you the entire way into a difficult place, out into the desert for a season, walking you into the growth walking you into the longing, walking you into the brokenness, walking you into the imperfections, walking you into the weakness, and it hurts, doesn't it? If you've had Jesus walk you into those kinds of places, it really hurts, and you really want it to stop, and you think, holy cow, there's gotta be a better way, there's gotta be another way, certainly we could, certainly I could die another way than this, but what, notice what you're saying there. You actually have to die. And that's a painful, grueling process. And that's not defeat. That is not defeat. It's not even close to defeat. The Bills losing four consecutive Super Bowls, frankly, that's not even defeat. What, What happened? They lost a game. That's all. That's not defeat. There's a lot worse things that could happen that you would actually call defeat. That's just losing four games. Stuff that feels like defeat may very well be Jesus' life breaking into and out of and through our lives so that we can be more like him. And that's not ever, ever, ever defeat. And so in those seasons, 
you just hang tight to Jesus. You just hang ever tighter onto Jesus because there's new life coming. It's coming through you. It's Jesus coming through you. It's on its way. Just hang on to him and don't give up. I want to wrap up today with one more. It's actually a Super Bowl play along with all of the ensuing fallout that anyone who even remotely follows professional football will remember from just last year. Super Bowl 49, if we started with the catch, we're going to end with the interception, and the spiritual principle we're going to lift out of this is this principle of criticism. Watch this. So the clock continues to run. Now second and goal, Russell Wilson, what are you doing? He gets picked off by the undrafted rookie free agent from Western Alabama, Malcolm Butler, who preserves the victory. And the Patriots have their fourth ring, and it will leave everybody asking, why in the world with Marshawn in the backfield did the Seahawks throw the football? 21 reasons. That was the worst Super Bowl call in the history of the Super Bowl. We will dissect it, but you can see the many faces of the characters in Super Bowl 49. Pete Carroll, the MVP Tom Brady, he's an MVP for a third time to tie his hero, Joe Montana, and that is a victory splash. First part of our exclusive interview with Seattle Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll. Many fans believe that his controversial play call at the end of the Super Bowl cost his team the game. So we travel to Seattle to talk to the coach about that play, the scrutiny he's under, and how he's coping with it all. Tell me a little bit about what it's been like to be Pete Carroll over these last three days. Well, there's been a... Uh... It's been a whirlwind. There's been a lot going on. I feel responsible for a lot of people right now. Um, it, certainly, you know, from the family to the organization, our players and the coaches and all that. But it extends well beyond that. You know, as you go out into our community and the, the area that follows us, there's a lot of people that that really care a lot about what we're doing. And uh, it's it our game hit them really hard. And uh, I You're thought they might need me. You're a little so. bit like Pete Carroll, the football coach. And let me, let me try it again. What's it been like to be Pete Carroll, the human being? over these past three days? I started off with uh, having to get right. I had to get my mind right so that I could take on what, what I was going to have to do. Uh, that was to face everybody and, and give them some perspective so that we can move ahead. I watched your expression as you saw that play unfold and you bent over at the waist and my heart broke for you, to be perfectly honest. How were you feeling inside? Immediately. I mean, within the instant of the turnover the gravity of, of what just happened, I, I, I understood. You have not watched TV. I'm sure that's somewhat of a self-imposed blackout a little bit. There you go. You don't want to hear the negativity, but you know what's being said. You've heard the experts, not just average Joe, say it was the worst call ever. It was the worst result of a call ever. <laughs> the call would have been a great one if we catch it. It would have been just fine and nobody would have thought twice about it. Isn't that something? You heard Carol say there, Right, the closing line of that clip, Lauer says, you heard the experts, it was the worst call ever. And Carol sort of interrupts, you know, like what does Matt Lauer know about the worst, seriously? <laughs> what does he know? It was the worst, what did he say? What did Carol say? The worst result of a call ever. The call would have been a great one if we catch it. It would have been just fine. Nobody would have thought twice about it. Great line. Great line. 
Because that's the deal with criticism, isn't it? Right? Like sometimes stuff just happens, doesn't it? And yet when stuff just happens still, how much criticism gets lobbed in on the people who made the decision, they made a call, and through no fault of theirs, the execution side of the call goes really poorly, and it doesn't matter, right? Because the criticism just comes, and it comes, and it comes, and it comes. Now get this. Please hear me real clearly. A lot of times, criticism is really justified. A lot of times, criticism is really justified. Sometimes criticism is very, very well deserved. Very often, as you all know, criticism helps bring correction or improvement so that things get better or go differently the very next time that same thing ever happens. Every single one of us has a story about a time when we botched something. We screwed something up really, really bad, and somebody came alongside of us. They put their arm around us, and they said, next time, here's how you could have done that differently. And if you're smart, you received it. You have a soft, tender heart. You take it in. You process it. You're like, yeah, I need to change this and that and that. And there was a next time. And you tried the thing that the person who put their arm around you suggested. And guess what? It went absolutely great. You learn. That's how we all grow. That's how we improve. That's how we learn, as a matter of fact. But then there's the kind of criticism that guys like Pete Carroll get in instances like this. What I call just nasty criticism. Right? Monday morning armchair coaching at its very worst. And everybody did it. The mumbling, show of hands, how many of you mumbled and grumbled, woulda, coulda, shoulda, about that very play right there? How many of you did, did, yeah, exactly. Mostly men, by the way. Mostly men. We all did it. And yet, here's the question. Does Pete Carroll really need our criticism? No. Does Pete Carroll need some ESPN commentator's criticism? Does he need some football columnist's criticism? No way. Why? Because guys like Pete Carroll, they are their very own worst critic. They are their very own worst critic. He knows because he's relived that play call. He's relived the play 10,000 times over and over. He's fallen asleep with that whole scene from start to finish playing over and over and over again through his mind. And he's going like, next time, next time, I'm going to do that differently. And there are times when people need, I need, we need, we all need it, you need it. Genuine, loving, truth-filled criticism when people screw something up. You know when we especially need that kind of criticism? You know what it is? It's when we screwed up and we don't think that we screwed up. That's when criticism is especially valuable. When we botched something and we don't think we botched anything. No, everything was great. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. That's when we really need criticism. When we screw up and don't think we did. Other times, you know what people need? It doesn't matter. It might be Pete Carroll. It might be your kids. It might be your spouse. It might be your colleagues. It might be a stranger in a grocery store. You know what a whole bunch of the time people need? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Here it is. So encourage each other. Build each other up. So encourage each other and build each other 
up a whole bunch of the time. That's what people need way more than they need a dose of our criticism. They need you to get alongside them and encourage them and build them up. Because chances are they know they screwed up. Chances are they know they screwed up and therefore they're pummeling themselves on the inside about it. Chances are they're playing whatever events they botched over and over and over again through their mind. They know they messed up. And when people know they messed up, they don't need us piling on. They don't need more hurtful criticism. Rather, they need a little encouragement, maybe a lot of encouragement. Or they need a little building up or a lot of building up. And some people, I dare say, maybe even some of us right here, we need to beware of a critical spirit, don't we? We need to beware of having a critical spirit. And some of you are asking, like, I don't know what a critical spirit is. It's someone who's always and forever piling on the criticism. It's all they do. Criticize, criticize, criticize. They very seldom, if ever, encourage. They very seldom, if ever, build up. It's only always ever criticism. Nothing's ever good enough. Everything's always bad. The sky is always falling. And they peck and they peck and they peck and they peck at everyone and everything in their sight. And here's one way that you can know that you might have a critical spirit. It's that you find yourself over and over again all alone, nobody really wanting to be around you. People who should want to be around you, like your spouse, your significant other, your kids, like they see you coming and they're ducking for cover because they've learned repeatedly over extended periods of time that you've probably already got some criticism loaded up about something they did or didn't do or should or shouldn't do and they're like, I, nope, duck for cover, guard against a critical Spirit, well, how do you do that? You cultivate your love factor for people. You want to guard against a critical spirit, you cultivate your love factor for all people. People you like, people you don't like, people anywhere in between the spectrum. You cultivate your love factor for all people. And if you do that, if your love grows... Your criticism factor, your critical spirit factor will decrease as your love factor for people increases. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. And keeps no record of being wrong. You get that? No record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every single circumstance. Beware of a critical spirit. Grow your love factor for all people and criticism, at least the hurtful kind, it'll just fall off your radar screen. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. And I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and get still and quiet before the Lord if you would.
Jesus, we're only here today because we believe to the depths of our being that you're speaking something to us today. You're telling us something. You're communicating something to every single one of us. Perhaps it's about faith. Perhaps there's a faith step that you're asking us to take and we've been parked on the bench or we've just been standing there. And God, today you're, you're nudging us and you're saying, come on. Throw the pass. Go for it. Don't just stand there. And God, maybe there's some others of us that we've marched long and hard into a season of what feels like defeat to us. And it's been brutal. And then here you are, God, whispering in our ear, I brought you here so that something more wonderful than you can even imagine can break through out of and into and through your life and it's Jesus and it's his life through you in you but in order for that to happen there's some stuff about you that's got to perish and so Jesus would you please help us see those seasons that feel like defeat as new life, your life, Christ's life, breaking through ours. And then Jesus, finally, there's some of us, some of us we really need to allow you unfettered access to our hearts and lives to work on this critical spirit thing. That Jesus, you would grow every single one of our love factors for all people you would grow it and that you would grow it, that you would transplant your heart into us, your heart for people, your love for people, that you'd transplant it right into our chests so that we love people the way you love people. And if we love people the way you love people, then a critical spirit isn't going to be a deal because we don't want to hurt people. We just want to love people and we want to help people and we want to encourage people and we want to build up people and we want to put our arm gently around people and say, yeah, I know you know. Next time, here's what you could do. That you'd grow our love, Jesus, for people. That you'd grow our love for you. And that, Jesus, you would use us wildly to bring your kingdom. Please, King Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.